Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. We are proud to have Microdose sponsoring our mission. As you know, we've been meeting fans and partners across the country, and it has been stressful to say the least, or at least it would have been without Microdose. They were perfect to ease the stress of flying, correcting jet lag, or relaxing after a long day of meetings and recording. Microdose gummies are made using the highest quality organic ingredients ingredients possible. They are vegan-friendly, gluten-free, and infused with organ-grown berries. We know that we will see a lot of options out there, but we are always impressed by the consistency provided by Microdose. Get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping today at Microdose.com. Promo code MANDY. It is available nationwide. That is Microdose.com promo code MANDY for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com promo code MANDY. I don't know how Justice Jean Toll will rule when Alec Murdoch gets his evidentiary hearing next month. But this week, as we pause and reflect on the past year, it is more clear to us than ever that T. Murdoch does not deserve a do-over. My name is Mandy Matney. This is True Sunlight, a podcast exposing crime and corruption, previously known as the Murdoch Murders Podcast. True Sunlight is a Luna Shark production written with journalist Liz Farrell. Well, happy holidays from all of us at Luna Shark. We are incredibly thankful for those of you loyal listeners who even stick around to hear what we have to say on holiday weeks. We are excited to celebrate with y'all on Friday at the Luna Shark Holiday Party. Members, be sure to check your emails for details. There will be surprise guests and giveaways. This year was a wild one. From the six-week emotional roller coaster of Alec Murdoch's trial, to Gerard Price's unbelievable prison release, to pulling strings in the Solomon case in Tennessee, to finally seeing accountability for Corey Fleming and Russell Lafitte, and then ultimately being sucked back into Dick and Jim's madness as their over-the-top plot to get Alec Murdoch a new trial unfolded. And sadly, Stephen Smith's case once again got pushed to the back burner, which we will plan to change in 2024 with our new website, AnswersForStephen.com, for all Smith-related tips. It was a year full of whiplash, triumph, heartbreak, shock, horror, and betrayal with a little bit of hope for humanity and justice in between. Our team was tested many times as the evildoers of the world did their best to destroy us through an awful online hate campaign. Ultimately, this year, we saw the best and the worst of humanity. We saw the brave women who testified against Alec Murdoch during his trial. We saw the financial victims who managed to show so much grace and forgiveness, all for a man who took advantage of their pain. We saw our listeners, time and time again, show up for us and stand up for us when it mattered the most. Y'all sent us letters of praise and encouragement and reminded us a thousand times over how important the work that we do really is and how we must keep going. 
We even got praise from the Sheryl Crow this year. I still can't believe that happened. And then we saw a lot of awful people do some really horrible things. We saw Dick and Jim play mind games with the Satterfields. We saw filthy rich PMPD attorneys cutting the lines of victims. We saw Russell and his attorneys go to great lengths to procrastinate his prison time. We saw attorneys elbowing each other out for just a taste of the Murdoch attention. And we saw members of the media purposely spin the truth on behalf of bad people. And then there was Becky Hill. Maybe the most disappointing human out of all of them this year. I say disappointing because I allowed my personal bias to assume that she was more of a decent person simply because she was a woman being vilified for what seemed like nothing more than a scheme to get Alec Murdoch out of prison. I feel foolish for ever sympathizing with her, and I feel even worse for ever leading my audience to have sympathy for her at all. While we still haven't seen any evidence of jury tampering, we have seen enough to know that Becky's reckless and egregious behavior has played right into the Murdoch's hands. While her unethical actions certainly do not mean that Ellick automatically deserves a new trial, they do make his chances greater and they make matters a lot more confusing for Justice Jean Toll's decision next month. Speaking of, Justice Jean Toll replied to Luna Shark reporter Beth Braden's inquiry this week and confirmed that the hearing for Ellick's motion for a new trial is tentatively scheduled for January 29th 30th and 31st in Richland County. Justice Toll told us that she expects to issue an order regarding media coverage soon. I'm a little bit more hopeful about Justice Toll because first of all, she was nice enough to respond to a reporter email during the holidays. And two, she seems to be supportive of meeting the media's needs for transparency in this hearing. But again, the situation just got a lot more complicated and harder to predict after more than 2,000 of Becky Hill's emails were released to the media via FOIA request. And wow, those emails were bad for Becky. Bad for Becky and her credibility. However, the emails did not show any evidence of jury tampering. Let's be clear on that one. So, we're going to guess that Colleton County Clerk of Court, Becky Hill, had the Christmas she deserved. One filled with regret, stress, and we hope a lot of self-reflection. As well as the drafting of some apology letters because she owes a bunch of them. Specifically, she owes a big apology to everyone for the chaos she's created with Ellick's case by rushing to publish her book. It's been sickening to watch people fall into Dick and Jim's trap as they continue to conflate her alleged ethical violations and her son's wiretapping arrest with the still unfounded allegations of jury tampering. She also owes an apology to us for the lies she spread about us being banned from the courtroom and to Eric Bland for saying he'd been reprimanded for taking a selfie in the courtroom. Neither of those things happened, not even a little bit. Yet she breezily allowed members of the media, as well as some trolls she partied with during the trial, believe they had. Why? Because she knew it's what they wanted to hear. 
Confirming their incorrect assumptions and extrapolations made her the girl with the room's attention. And she had nothing to lose with us because, like we've said, we had no relationship with her. None. We were polite and professional and nothing more. Oh, and Becky owes an apology to Neil Gordon, her co-author, for tainting and tanking their book. The Murdoch case has never been a slow ride. There have always been twists and turns and revelations that are hard to reconcile with what goes on in normal, everyday life. But Becky has taken it to an entirely new level, and like with Alec, there seems to be no bottom here. It's just getting worse and worse. And frankly, it's the dumbest thing we've seen thus far in this case, just extraordinarily dumb. On Tuesday morning, the second that Christmas was over, Becky's co-author Neil announced to the press that he had halted sales of Behind the Doors of Justice, the book he and Becky Speed wrote and published in July. Why? Because old Becky plagiarized the intro from a story written by a reporter with the BBC. She stole it. It's not clear whether Becky thought that because this was foreign press, she could get away with copying and pasting the reporter's text and no one in the United States would be the wiser. And actually, now that I think about it, she would not have been wrong. This plagiarism wasn't even discovered until Colleton County did a massive data dump of her emails from the past year last Thursday. It seems like no one noticed before that. It is beyond bizarre. Neither of us can wrap our heads around plagiarism, not just because of how easily discoverable it is in this day and age, but the idea of taking someone else's work and presenting it as your own. Even if no one were to ever find out, it is the dirtiest of dirty. In the writing world, it is akin to stolen valor. It's a moral failure. Throughout her book, Becky referenced how she'd always wanted to write a book. She went into the trial with the idea of writing one on her mind. But the point of writing a book would be to write one, not steal someone else's work. According to a statement that Becky put out through her attorneys, Will Lewis and Justin Bamberg, she plagiarized the BBC story because of so-called pressures and time constraints involved with the publishing of the book. The pressure and time constraints Becky felt were self-imposed. It was a self-published book. More than that, let's be clear about what the pressure was. It was to be first. She rushed the writing of her book so she could get the book about the trial out the door before anyone else. And here we are. In our business, some reporters and news agencies and publishing houses put a lot of stock in being out there first with the information, which is great. Breaking news is really fun. But we've always believed there's no point in being first if you're also not the best. In other words, the mad dash to being first can get you in a lot of trouble and it can hurt people. For instance, with the release of Becky's 2,000 emails, in the rush to be first, a news agency published the entirety of the FOIA release without apparently looking at them. In releasing these emails, they not only needlessly exposed a woman with special needs to online harassment by publishing her personal information, which we talked about Tuesday in Cup of Justice, they published a link to unredacted photos of Paul Murdoch's body, in violation of Judge Newman's order. We'll talk more about what was in Becky's emails in another episode, but her plagiarism was discovered in the email dump from Colleton County. BBC reporter Holly Hondrick accidentally sent Becky a draft of a story she had written about the trial. The draft was meant for her editor, who is also named Rebecca. When Holly discovered her error, she told Becky to disregard the email. Becky did not disregard the email. Instead, she responded by telling Holly how well written her story was. Then she lifted whole passages of it to use in her own book. 
it is baffling why she or anyone would do that. And frankly, it's baffling why this wasn't caught before, especially given the quote she cited in her introduction from interviews she herself never conducted. So that's another disaster with Becky sitting at the center of it. We touch on some of this in Cup of Justice, but going back to her lie about us being banned from the courtroom, when she told Thad Moore from the Post and Courier that it must be true because we weren't there, great logic, right? We don't want to spend any more time having to defend ourselves over something so dumb that simply did not happen. So we invite our trolls, or anyone who wants to hear it for themselves, to call Jay Bender, the longtime First Amendment attorney who not only is Justice Jean Toll's former law partner, served as the media liaison for the trial. Or, better yet, call Judge Newman's office to find out whether or not Mandy and Liz were escorted from the courtroom and ordered not to return. We promise you. Had either of those things happened, we would have raised hot, holy hell over it. And more than that, had either of those things happened, it would have been in the headlines. That's why Thad Moore was asking Becky about the rumor. It would have been big news if we or any other reporter had been sanctioned in any way connected to Alec Murdoch. Additionally, in what world would Dick and Jim not have been shouting that from the rooftops this entire time? The only people who have been spreading this rumor have been bloggers who have known better this entire time and a podcaster who appears to have drawn her own conclusions when she saw me asking a bailiff if I could use the bathroom. He came over to tell me that the hallway was clear and I could now use it. Their goal was and is to destroy our professional reputations and our professional standing in this story. And it really sucks that Becky had a part in that. We have been one of the only outlets to extend compassion to her during this entire ordeal because we know that, regardless of whether she's ultimately found guilty of an unrelated ethical violation, her life is being blown up in an effort to confuse people into believing Alec didn't get a fair trial. And that is wrong. And it's only happening because Alec Murdoch has the money and power to make it happen. And because Becky made it really easy for him. Which brings us to this wild and crazy year. For today's episode, we've revisited some of the most notable moments on our show during the past 12 months, particularly the parts that are important now as Ellick is attempting to get a new trial. 2023 started off with news that after nearly four years, Buster Murdoch was tapping out of the Mallory Beach case. All of Maggie's estate, except for the 500000 that they allowed Buster to keep, would be going to the Beach family and the boat crash victims. It seemed promising. Like maybe Buster was trying to cut ties with Alec before the trial. Like maybe the Murdoch family had accepted that they'd come to the end of the road with their power and influence. Like maybe it was time to forge a new path instead of relying on the pirate's path built by the three Randolphs. Little did we know he'd end up sitting behind Alec for six weeks and then taking part in a Fox Nation documentary that seemed to be nothing more than new trial propaganda for Team Murdoch. Also in January, right before Alec's trial started, we got the horrible news that Judge Newman's 40-year-old son, Brian, had died unexpectedly. A judge mourning the loss of his own beloved son while presiding over the trial of a man who'd been accused of killing his. It was a stunning reminder that everything involving Alec Murdoch seemed like a story that could have been written by John Grisham. In January, we had our eye on the Idaho case in which a criminal studies doctoral student had just been arrested for the murders of four college students. Going into the trial, that case put a lot of things in perspective about Ellick's case. And it's interesting to revisit where our heads were right before the trial started. Here's a clip from Murdoch Murders Podcast, episode 75. We have been told all along that officials were keeping the information in this case tight because they were up against Dick and Jim. 
the big bad wolves of SE Law, or so they used to seem. And the thing is, a lot of the information we have learned about the evidence has come from the defense. And because of that, it's just really hard to predict the totality of evidence here. I talked to a lot of Low Country locals about this case and have noticed a very common theme recently. A lot of people believe that he did it, but they doubt that the state can prove that. They say things like, look, Ellick looks guilty as hell, but will the state be able to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt? They say things like, all Dick and Jim need is one juror. They say things like, we saw how chaotic Russell's trial was and how Russell had a pile of evidence against him. Do we really think the AG's office can convict Ellick Murdoch in the double homicide? And they say things like, you saw how sloppy the state was with the blood spatter evidence. And you sure Cousin Eddie didn't do this? These are things people say to me in restaurants, in bars, in public restrooms. My life is weird. Have I mentioned how badly that I want this trial to be over with? Anyways, from what I've gathered, Dick and Jim, who are highly experienced in media manipulation and have their fair share of friends in the press, have, in my opinion, successfully planted seeds of doubt in the public. All of those Cousin Eddie polygraph and DNA headlines have appeared to work in favor of the defense. By the way, the Post and Courier reported this week that Cousin Eddie's attorney says his DNA was compared with the DNA at the double homicide scene and that he was excluded as a suspect. Just to put that to rest. We hope that the state's case is as good as the case in Idaho appears to be. We hope that we will be just as impressed in two weeks when the state begins to lay out its case and call witnesses. And let's be clear too, it's very hard to judge an investigation before trial. But at the same time, we hope that state officials learn from this. We hope that South Carolina learns that transparency matters, especially when public corruption is alleged. We hope they see what we have pointed out with the two justice systems, and we hope that things change. We hope that the lack of transparency in this case, where we had to constantly scrap and fight for information behind the scenes just to keep accountability at the forefront, has not been because of politics. Are the people at the top, the ones who work for us in the public, still afraid to speak out against a Murdoch? And if so, is it because of all of those who secretly remain in Murdoch's corner? because of whatever those people may be protecting and because of wherever Ellick's money really went. It's actually chilling to hear this. It makes us look around at where we are now and think, are we back at square one? Please tell us we are not back at square one. Regardless, it's interesting to see where we were then and how the trial of the century wasn't always that way. We went into it thinking it would be two weeks long, maybe three. We should have known from Dick's opening statement that we were in for the longest roller coaster ride of our lives. Here's a clip from MMP episode 77. Think a big Creighton energy, but the opposite of that. Get it? Okay. In all seriousness, I'm going to start by saying that it is very obvious that I do not like Dick Harpoolian. 
I think he's arrogant. I think he's overhyped and over the hill. I think he was successful in a world that was made for men like him to succeed, which I am not impressed by. But my opinions about Dick do not matter here. What will matter are the jury's opinions. And to the jury, Dick wanted them to see a different Alec Murdoch than the world is seeing. They wanted to see Alec the family man, Alec the loving husband, the Alec that Dick said he is honored to represent. You know, the Alec who admitted to stealing millions of dollars from his dead housekeeper's children. Honored. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my name is Dick Harpuglian. I introduce myself to y'all and our attorneys, the three other attorneys, Jim Griffin, Philip Barber, Margaret Fox. It is our honor to represent Alec Murdoch. Or Murdoch, depending on how you pronounce it. I say it's our honor because I submit to you what you have heard from the Attorney General as facts are not, are not. They're his theories, his conjecture. Now stand up. This is Alec Murdoch. And Alec was the loving father of Paul and the loving husband of Maggie. You're not going to hear a single witness say that their relationship, Maggie and Alex's relationship, were anything other than loving. You're going to hear about how they went to a baseball game the weekend before. You're going to hear about their relationship. You're going to see texts and emails indicating a loving relationship. I think we can all say that we know Dick has no honor now, right? and that he was never actually honored to be defending Alec. He likes the money and the attention and the sound of his own name. By the way, does anyone remember hearing about Maggie and Alec's loving relationship during that trial? We seem to remember how Alec basically described his wife, whom he barely mentioned, as being a woman. And we remember during an in-camera hearing how it came out that Maggie had suspected Alec of a long-time affair. But sure, we'll call it loving. The thing that still makes us shake our heads, by the way, is how Dick thought that one of his best strategies would be to get as graphic as possible about the deaths. But now that he knows Becky had warned jurors of the graphic nature of photos they were about to see, he's clutching at his pearls. In the lead up to the trial, we could tell Dick was going to go in that direction using phrases like, Paul's head exploded like a watermelon. He so badly wanted this jury to believe that Alec was dad of the year and that the dad of the year couldn't possibly have butchered his own family. Paul, the apple of his eye. You're going to see a video somewhere between 7.30 and 8 o'clock, the night of the murders, with Paul and Alec riding around looking at some trees they planted. It's a Snapchat that Paul sent to other people because the trees were not planted very well. They were cantilevering over. They are laughing. They're having a good time. That would be about an hour before the Attorney General says he swatted them. When I say he swatted them, when they were swatted, and no question, Paul Murdoch was shot twice with buckshot, 12-gauge buckshot, once in the chest, 
And by the way, that shot would indicate it was in the chest and came out under his arm like somebody that might have been holding up their hands. So when he says no defensive wounds, he perhaps is being held at shotgun. I mean, I can make the same sort of speculation that the Attorney General can, because that's all he's doing is speculating. What we do know is 12-gauge, fairly close-range shot to the chest. He must have been turned because it comes out under his arm. There's wadding, if you're familiar with the shotgun, under his arm. I mean, honestly, can you guys imagine a round two of this meandering nonsense? Can you imagine another six weeks of listening to this guy? We'll be right back. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Velux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, the improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. In February, the prosecution scored one of its biggest wins throughout the entire trial by getting Judge Newman to allow evidence related to Ellick's financial crimes on the record. You know, it is frustrating looking back on everything that happened during the trial and seeing just how many obvious and stupid mistakes Team Murdoch made. Mistakes that they might get to fix if they get around to due to Becky's reckless mistakes. One of those Team Murdoch mistakes happened in early February, as Jim Griffin was cross-examining one of Paul Murdoch's best friends, Will Loving. 
Jen played a birthday video showing the Murdoch family, along with Chris Wilson, celebrating Alec Murdoch's last birthday as a free man. Griffin wanted to show the jurors that they were a happy, loving family, and he asked Will Loving if he believed Alec had a reason to kill his family. With that question, the door to the financial crimes swung wide open, allowing Creighton Waters to do this. Before you do that, go back to the to your video if you would, please. Can y'all turn that screen around for me, please? Who's that guy in the green shirt? Do you know? That's Chris Wilson. Do you know Chris Wilson's relationship to Alec Wilson or Alec Murdoch? Yeah, I think they're best friends. Best friends. Best friends should do each other right, isn't that correct? And then he did this. Did you know anything about Alec's finances? Um, no, I did not. Did you know anything about his law practice? Um, no, I did not. Did you know anything about where he gets his money? No, I did not. Did you know anything about where he was spending his money? No, I did not. Did you know anything about what his bank account balances were? No, sir, I did not. Did you know anything about the debt that he was carrying? Do you know anything about that? No, sir. Did you know the specific things that were going on in the boat case the week that Paul and Maggie were murdered? No, sir. Do you know anything about civil discovery and, and how it can expose financial information? No, sir. Do you know anything at all about him being confronted on June 7th, 2021 about... Object. Did you know anything about him being confronted on the morning of June 7th, 2021 about $792,000 of missing fees from his law firm? Objection, Your Honor. But totally improper. Objections overruled. Did you know anything about that? No, I did not. You know any of the facts of those things that I just asked you about? No, sir. Ultimately, Judge Newman said that because Jim asked Will Loving a character witness question, it opened the door for the state to present further evidence of Ellick's financial crimes, which then led to an in-camera hearing and then led to that evidence being allowed in. AKA, it was a big mistake that Jim asked Will Loving that question. Now, that is the type of mistake, combined with a ruling in favor of the prosecution, that might be tough to repeat. Was it fair? Absolutely. Did it require really good lawyering on Creighton's end to seize the moment and really sloppy lawyering on Jim's part? Yes. Let's be clear, the financial crimes explain Alec's motive. Even though the state doesn't have to prove motive for its case, they do have to prove malice, and they can use motive to prove malice. Despite that, however, juries are made up of human beings who tend to need a motive, especially when it comes to a crime this horrendous, where a father is accused of killing his wife and son. Scott Peterson? Well, he had an affair and major financial pressure. Chris Watts, he also was having an affair and also major financial problems. These motives were clear-cut and ultimately helped jurors find those men guilty. But Alec Murdoch's situation was a bit more complicated. 
The financial witnesses were crucial because they also laid out a clear timeline leading up to the murders that pointed directly at Alec. Of course, there has been some criticism about Judge Newman's decision to allow in this financial testimony. Alec's appeal is wholly based on that decision. But people shouldn't forget why Judge Newman made this decision. It wasn't out of thin air. It wasn't made out of bias against Alec. It was made because Alec's own attorney wanted the jury to hear about Alec's character, but only the good parts. Not the part where his entire career depended on a financial scheme that was quickly falling apart at the seams. Mark Tinsley, the Beach's family attorney, was one of those crucial witnesses. He was on to Alec and his sketchy finances in the months leading up to the murders. It was no secret. Mark was suing Alec Murdoch for millions of dollars, but Alec Murdoch was dodging him and refusing to release his financial records as a part of the case. Mark knew something was up, and he knew the kind of money Alec and his law firm were raking in. Yet, Alec was pretending to be broke, with no deep pockets for the Beach family to go after. No, sir, Mark Tinsley said, not buying that. Mark made it clear to the jury that June 10th, three days after the murders, was going to be a big day in the boat crash case, and that Judge Hall was going to compel Alec to disclose his finances which would have meant big trouble for Alec, since he had stolen millions of dollars from his clients at that point and no one apparently knew about it. To make the timeline even sharper, PMPED CFO Jeannie Seconder testified about the confrontation at PMPED on the day of June 7th, the first time Alec's law firm ever officially confronted him about the missing $690,000 from the Chris Wilson case. She also told the jury that Alec's father, the true powerhouse of the family, was dying that week. Was the jury really supposed to believe that on the week that his wife and son were murdered, Alec Murdoch's criminal empire just happened to be on the verge of collapsing and those two things were completely separate? Those financial crime testimonies were a lot more powerful than the talking heads on TV made them out to be. And I worry about the outcome of another trial without them. In February, we also learned just how sloppy the crime scene was. Again, this is really frustrating because sloppiness and incompetence always works out in Alec's favor. Look at Becky right now. Check out this clip from episode 80 of MMP. We have got to talk about SLED's investigation. I'm going to be honest. I've had a lot of questions while watching this trial, especially in the last few days. Why wasn't Alec treated like a suspect initially when he was the husband and the first person to find the bodies? Why wasn't all of Moselle treated as a crime scene? Why were Alec's law partners and friends allowed on the crime scene? What happened with the blood spatter evidence? Why is it not entered into court? Why did it take until September to search Almeida? Why was this investigation so slow? Why no urgency when two people had been murdered? And why was Alec still allowed to carry a solicitor's office badge when he had lied multiple times to police about the murder of his wife and son when he was the only suspect? 
I think I know the answer, and I hate to say it because I feel like a broken record right now. I believe it's power, privilege, and the two systems of justice that allowed for these kinds of mistakes that gave this kind of leeway to a man like Alec Murdoch. If Alec were an average man, I think he would have been hauled in immediately. I don't think any of his friends would have been allowed anywhere near the crime scene. I think charges would have happened a lot sooner, and I think the investigation would be a lot more complete. And if Alec Murdoch were an average man with a public defender, I think this trial would have been over a long time ago. But Alec is not average. So here we are in the middle of week four with no end in sight. I want to be clear though, I don't think the anomalies in the investigation mean that the state has no case. If anything, the holes in the investigation have benefited Alec. One of the questions the defense asked the lead sled agent on Wednesday was why Almeida wasn't searched that night. That sled agent had a quick answer, because there was no probable cause to do so. Alec was not a suspect yet. And that's really the issue here. SLED did not consider Alec a suspect until there was no choice. This is where the evidence took them. We keep saying it because it's true. It would have been much easier for the state if Alec was not the suspect. The other thing I want to mention is what we've been saying again and again. Solicitor Duffy Stone didn't recuse himself for more than two months. That means his office, the office Ellick worked for, was calling the shots. Were agents shut down when they suggested getting warrants for the powerful and almighty former solicitor Randolph Murdoch's home? Were agents hindered in the collection of evidence because of Duffy's involvement? We already know that his involvement caused a delay in the retrieval of Ellick's phone data, and that led to some information getting overwritten. So again, what we're seeing right now with the questions being raised about the thoroughness of the investigation, we think most of that is attributable to the deference that was being paid to the Murdochs and their powerful friends. I have to point this out again. The deference. How is it that this man gets to take advantage of every mistake made by a sloppy system, a system his family helped build? How is that possible after a jury found him guilty despite those big mistakes that leaned in his favor? And now he gets to take advantage of a clerk of court's recklessness by spinning it into a confusing and unpredictable bid for a new trial. Finally, throughout the month of February, we saw that the state, day by day, was inching ahead of the defense in the game of lawyering. The prosecution called powerful, emotional witnesses to the stand, like Maggie's sister Marion Proctor and caretaker Shelley Smith. That raw, earth-shattering emotion simply was not there for the defense. For example, Buster's testimony felt flat and colorless. He could have been nervous, but it was hard for the world to relate to the son of a legal dynasty who couldn't remember his dad's birthday. When's your dad's birthday? Do you know the exact date? Uh, it's not a test. If you just say you don't know if you don't know. No, I don't, I don't know the exact date. It's around uh, Memorial Day? That's right. Okay. 27th, maybe. And then there was Alec's brother, John Marvin 
who failed miserably at his attempt to get sympathy for Alec when he told a very odd story about Alec messing himself. And was he able to control himself? No, sir. Um, no. I said about detail. So he he messed himself. He he had diarrhea. Um, he just couldn't control it. And then... Um, and, and I say diarrhea. I'm not talking about at a restroom. I'm talking about in the car, in his pants. Okay. While I think they were aiming for sympathy there, the world really just heard that and went, Ew, who are these people? It didn't get much better with the defense's other witnesses. For months, the media hyped up Dick and Jim as the holy grail of attorneys equipped with the most impressive and expensive experts in the land. That reputation quickly began to crumble when the defense called one of their very first witnesses, who will forever be remembered as the armpit guy. My initial um, processing was that I went and checked both bodies, and I simply put my hands in their in their armpits to determine how warm they are. This is. This is one of the things we do sometimes to try and estimate a time of death. Is, is the body cold? Is the body warm? Yikes. That didn't land like it was supposed to with the jury. Neither did the whole five-foot-two shooter theory from their expert who called himself a forensic engineer, but was actually hired as an expert to defend Paul in the boat crash. And this was his first murder trial. These appear to be sloppy attorney mistakes. Mistakes that the defense team made because they believed they could outsmart the jury with their absurd distractions. Again, when we go back and analyze why the jury came to its conclusion, we need to think about all of these choices that Alex's team made that the jury ultimately rejected. Decisions that had nothing to do with Becky Hill. Perhaps the biggest and ballsiest mistake they made next to opening the door for Alec's financial crimes was putting Alec Murdoch, aka liar liar pants on fire, man who swindled motherless children and the grieving disabled on the stand. Dick and Jim claimed to do this because Alec wanted to and because they needed a big move for the jury to get past the big lie, a.k.a. the video that proved Alec Murdoch lied when he said that he wasn't at the kennels moments before his wife and son were murdered. This was arguably the most important piece of evidence against him. In fact, a juror told the Today Show that she believed it would have been a hung jury without that video. And multiple jurors told the Today Show that Alec didn't help his case at all by testifying. But of course he testified. And of course, he came across as a manipulative egomaniac. Here is Jim Griffin setting Alec up to address the big lie. 2021, did you take this gun or any gun like it and shoot your son Paul in the chest in the feed room at your property off Moselle Road? No, I did not. Mr. Murdy, did you take this gun or any gun like it and blow your son's brains out on June 7th or any day or any time? No, I did not. Mr. Murdy, did you take a 300 blackout such as this and fire it into 
your wife Maggie's leg, torso, or any part of her body? No, I did not. Did you shoot a 300 blackout into her head, causing her death? Mr. Griffin, I didn't shoot my wife or my son anytime, ever. Mr. Murdoch, is that you? On the kennel video at 8.44 p.m. on June 7th, the night Maddie, Maggie and Paul were murdered. It is. Were you, in fact, at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. on the night Maggie and Paul were murdered? I was. Did you lie to Sled Agent Owen and Deputy Laura Rutland on the night of June 7th and told them that you stayed at the house after dinner? I did lie to them. Did you lie to Agent Owen and Agent Croft on the follow-up interview on June 10th that the last time you saw Maggie and Paul was at dinner? I did lie to them. And in the interview of August 11th, did you tell Agent Owen and Agent Craw, did you lie to them t by telling them that you were not down at the kennels on that night? Yes. Alec, why did you lie to Agent Owen, Agent Croft, and Deputy Rutland about the last time you saw Maggie and Paul? As my addiction evolved over time, I would get in these situations or circumstances where I would get paranoid thinking. Uh, and it, it could be anything that, that triggered it. It might be a look somebody gave me. It might be a reaction somebody had to something I did. Um, it might be a policeman following me in, in a car. Um, that night, June 7th, after finding Mags and Paul, 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 don't talk to anybody without Danny with you. So all my partners were just repeatedly telling me that. I had a deputy sheriff taking gunshot test from my hands. I'm sitting in a police car with David Owen asking me about my relationship with my wife and my son. And all those things coupled together after finding them, coupled with my distrust for SLED, caused me to have paranoid thoughts. Normally, when these paranoid thoughts would hit me, I could take a deep breath real quick and just think about it, reason my way through it, and just get past it really quickly. On June the 7th, I wasn't thinking clearly. I don't think I was capable of reason. And I lied about being down there. And I'm so sorry that I did. I'm sorry to my son Buster. I'm sorry to Grandma and Papa T. I'm sorry to both of our families. 
Most of all, I'm sorry to Mags and Paul Paul. I would never intentionally do anything to hurt either one of them. Ever. Ever. Did, did you continue lying after that night? Did you not? Well, once I lied, I continued to lie. Yes, sir. Why? You know, oh, what a tangled web we weave. But once I told a lie, and I told my family, I, I had to keep lying. He said he lied and lied more because he was addicted to drugs but not addicted enough that he would murder his family in a rage spiral as his lies piled up too high for even 6'4 Alec Murdoch to crawl out of. The defense has wanted the general public to believe that drugs were the root of Alec's problems since September 2021. The jury, like most of y'all listening to this podcast, did not buy it. And those men who should have listened to the public instead of their little echo chamber of trolls they believe that they deserve a do-over where they can scratch their bad theories and try again. And we'll be right back. How's your sock door looking? Scary? Maybe it's time for a spring cleaning and a refresh. Bombas just dropped a bunch of absurdly soft new socks, tees, and underwear to help you get that drawer in a better place while doing a little good too. Once you try Bombas, you will never look at socks the same way again. They have obsessed over details like foot-hugging honeycomb arch support and cushioned footbeds that feel like little pillows for your feet. Personally, I love that Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or our pups eats a sock, looking at you, Luna, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they will do whatever they can to replace it and make it right. Get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash Mandy and use code Mandy for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash Mandy and use code Mandy at checkout. Have you ever felt like you would make a really good detective? Turns out, I enjoy finding clues about scandalous family secrets, uncovering mysteries, and cracking the case, including in my off time. If you are like me, let me tell you about my experiences with June's Journey for iOS and Android. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating story that takes you behind the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. It really challenges your observational skills. I have been immersed in this thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. Each will help us solve the mystery and get justice for June's sister, Claire. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android and see if you can crack the case. On March 1st, Dick and Jim thought it would be a great idea to take the jury to Moselle so they could see for themselves how Alec did not kill Maggie and Paul. 
Instead, the jury saw for themselves how he could kill them and how he did kill them. And that's after Team Murdoch's ridiculous attempts at redesigning the set. I'm not even kidding you. Remember all the weird touches they had put up at Moselle? Like having a shirt hanging in the window of the house in the hopes the jury would be like, oh, duh, maybe that's the shirt he was wearing that Blanca said she never saw again? And having a bicycle parked outside as if Maggie had just been taking a leisurely ride down to the kennels that night and had not ridden down on the golf cart with Alec. And the stuffed animal chicken in the kennel. Was that to get the jury to have a shared chuckle over Bubba? Maybe that dead chicken that was put up on top of the kennels wasn't the chicken they were talking about on the video that Alec didn't know existed when he made up his alibi. Maybe it was a stuffed chicken this whole time. It was pathetic. Their case was so weak that they needed to rely on subliminal messages. Because what else did they have? They had a man who had lied about his alibi until the video proved him wrong lied about the existence of a 300 blackout until a cashed check told on him, lied about how long he was at his mother's house until his mother's caretaker told on him, lied about what he was wearing until his maid told on him, lied about this being tied to the boat crash victims until their DNA and alibis proved otherwise, lied about having Maggie's phone until his GPS told on him, lied about getting shot by someone who looked like Mallory Beach's boyfriend until his slashed tire told on him. Oh, and then there was that fun little theory that Paul and Maggie could only have been killed by two five-foot, two-inch weaponless bandits who happened to show up in the tiny window of time between when Alec left the kennels and got to the house. And they want to do this again. They want to put the state of South Carolina through these antics again. The next day, after this trip to Moselle, the jury came back with its verdict. And in episode 83, Mandy finally got to say the words. I now know, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Alec Murdoch murdered his wife Maggie and his son Paul after a Colleton County jury found him guilty on all four counts. He was sentenced to life in prison, and that is a big deal. It was such a great moment, not only for us feeling like what we do for a living matters, but we just felt so much pride in our chosen home state in the people we weren't too sure of at first. In episode 83, we got to talk to Creighton Waters for the first time. And naturally, we asked him about the nicknames our listeners would chant online every time he came on the screen during trial. And in case you were wondering whether he knew that people were cheering him on by calling him BCE, i.e. Big Creighton Energy, here's what he had to say about that. Well, uh... Yeah, I know that there's some T-shirts out there, and and I've heard, I've been told Liz that you're the one who kind of coined that term. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, you know, I, I think um, yeah, I've heard some of that, and uh, you know, I started, I got, I did my first tweet ever on uh, Saturday, and uh, you know, I, obviously, I've seen that term used in some of the responses that people have been sending, and uh, I think the Friday. Uh, you know, there were there were some people wearing that shirt, uh, and I went over and and uh, spoke to them and took a picture with them. I figured I couldn't. Uh, I think I was doing an interview or something. I I couldn't just let them sit there and watch and not go over and speak to them. So, but yeah, I guess I did the thing now because you know that trial was so exhausting, and I, I still, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I know I still haven't recovered yet and ended up losing like ten pounds, but. You know, having that term out there, you know, I, you know, sometimes when you had to dig deep, uh, you know, you realize that, uh, you know, that, that you had to, to give that energy, right? 
The entire team at the Attorney General's office delivered one of the most incredible professional performances we've seen in our careers. Team Murdoch, not so much, but at least they were entertaining, I guess. Looking back on the final moments of Ellick's trial and looking at where we are now, I've come to wonder something. After the Egg Lady juror was dismissed, it seemed like any wind that had been in the defense's sails, any internal courtroom wind that is, not the wind coming from some of the media and their pro-defense coverage, or the trolls who were scrapping for their own social media territory in this, had died down significantly. There was a definite before and after energy from their table. Why was that? Team Murdoch wants us to believe that the egg lady was just a juror who had not made up her mind yet. But according to the woman who heard the egg lady's tenants recount a discussion they had had with the egg lady about the trial, the egg lady believed Ellick was innocent. Did Team Murdoch know that they had lost the only person on the jury who wasn't seeing the truth? Is that why Jim Griffin's closing arguments had all the energy of a clown whose balloon dog had popped? I mean, based on his performance alone, it's so obvious that what we're seeing now is a request for a do-over, wrapped in a trumped-up, empty allegation of jury tampering. Their tricks didn't work the first time, even though they had the best-case scenario of juries, a group of people from a county run by Ellick's family for generations. When the trial was over and the verdict was in, we knew we couldn't stop pushing for change because Ellick's guilt in the murders was only part of the problem. Here again is a clip from episode 83. Over the past few days, we've been reflecting on the magnitude of this case and what we hope it will mean for the future of law enforcement and prosecution in our state. More specifically, what it will mean for the future of other powerful people who break the law and assume that they can pay their way out of the situation. Until we are all held accountable to the same laws, regardless of our positions of influence, our financial portfolios, our race, our age, our gender, our sexual orientation, our political beliefs, there will be no justice in the justice system, in our opinion. This verdict is a huge step in the right direction. We hope this outcome inspires those who work within the system and those of us who do not. Those of us on the sidelines who need to call out injustice when we see it. That said, the road to Alec Murdoch being found guilty was not an easy one for anyone to travel, starting with the night of the murders. Here is Colleton County Sheriff's Deputy Chad McDowell about 17 minutes after he arrived at Moselle. Y'all familiar with this family? Uh, I wasn't until he told me the names. Uh, I'll fill you in later. Hearing that on body camera was a stark reminder of how it is down here, or at least how it was in June 2021. From the get-go, the Murdoch name meant something to law enforcement. It meant that whatever the scenario was, their ability to do their jobs would be affected by this outside force, this undeniable influence in some way. This undeniable influence required an army to defeat it. It's disheartening to re-listen to that knowing that the army didn't defeat the influence. It only held it back. Because here it is again, rearing its ugly head. Before Judge Newman asked to be removed from hearing Team Murdoch's motions for a new trial, Dick and Jim tried to use his words during Ellick's sentencing against him. Words that still resonate with people all over the world who rightfully build Judge Newman as America's judge. He represents the best of the justice system. 
and no matter how many times Dick and Jim can try to throw him under the bus, we know that good people have his back. Another important factor in this trial was the way Culleton County and the city of Walterboro welcomed the public and the media into their home. The high level of transparency and cooperation offered by Clerk of Court Becky Hill and her staff was fundamental to building public trust in the proceedings. And then there was Judge Newman. He was fair, he was wise, and he was considerate. If the judicial system has a soul, it resides with this judge. In Ellick's final moments standing before the court, Judge Newman explained his reasoning behind the sentencing, and in doing so, he spoke a truth so real that his words continued to echo in the minds of all those who watched. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure. And every night. Yeah, I'm sure. And they will continue to do so. And, and reflect on the last time they looked you in the eyes, as you looked the jury in the eyes. Um, I don't know a um, person who's always been such a gregarious, friendly person. Uh, and cause her life to be tangled in such a weave web, uh, such a situation that you, um, yours have spun into. Uh, and it's so unfortunate because you had such a lovely family of such friendly people, and, including you. And, and to go from that to this, You know, your license to practice law has been stripped away from you. you turned from lawyer to witness. And now uh, have an opportunity to make your final appeal uh, as, a, as an ex-lawyer. And it's almost, uh, it's really surprising that you're waiving this right at this time. And if you opt to do so, it's on you. I, you're not compelled to say anything. But you have the opportunity to do so. And I tell you again, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife Maggie and I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son, Paul. Well, it, and it might not have been you. It, it might have been uh, the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you become another person. Um, I've seen that before person standing before me was not the person who committed the crime, though it's the same individual. Um, we'll leave that at that.
Looking back now, it should have been immediately clear to us right after the trial that this wasn't the end. That losing was a contingency Dick and Jim had been preparing for on a parallel track all along. That they'd been gathering footholds behind the scenes looking for every little crumb on the ground to zoom in on, enlarge, and exploit. One of those footholds was Dick's lawyer pal, Joe McCullough, sitting in the courtroom every day with the media pass on that he had gotten from Becky Hill, saying that he was there to work on a screenplay. We knew then that it was fishy when the egg lady juror hired him to tell the media to leave her alone. We just didn't realize how fishy. Another sign was that one of the first post-trial stories written by the Post and Courier was essentially a there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-sled story about how the trial had exposed breakdowns in their investigatory practices. It wasn't so much that the PNC took this angle. It made sense when considering lessons learned during the trial. It was what the PNC didn't say. That Sled was immediately fighting an uphill battle, not just against Alec Murdoch, but Alec, his partners at PMPED, his family, his lawyers, Dick and Jim, and our very own solicitor, the Murdoch's chosen one and Alec's co-worker, Duffy Stone, whose presence at the scene was highly problematic. To fault the agency without noticing this tremendous influence at work was again missing the point of everything we'd all just been through. But also, it further cemented an idea that Dick and Jim wanted out there. That Sled was bumbling, useless, and sloppy when it came to Ellick's investigation. Another thing that happened post-trial was the very early release of murderer Gerard Price, a man said to be the leader of the Bloods gang in prison. A secret court order that had been signed and sealed in December was suddenly unsealed right after Ellick was found guilty. Gerard got this deal because his lawyer legislator Todd Rutherford, a man who sits on the commission to choose judges in this state, had been handed what he wanted by an early release deal Todd was able to get for him. And Gerard wasn't the only prisoner who got released early because of Todd's stronghold on judges. We still believe the timing of Gerard's release was suspicious, considering the lag between when the order was signed and sealed and when it was finally unsealed, and considering the magnitude of what happened, meaning this case was basically a test to see if a fairly new law allowing for reduced sentencing for prisoners who provided meaningful assistance to Department of Corrections investigators could apply to convicted murderers. Who do we know that's a convicted murderer? Oh right. Needless to say, it was more evidence that our justice system is rotten from the inside out and that Alec Murdoch was just one good old boy lawyer in a state full of them. After the trial, we wanted to refocus our effort on the Stephen Smith case and getting to the bottom of what happened to Gloria Satterfield. And we did get some momentum going there. Our COJ co-host Eric Bland and his partner Ronnie Richter began representing Sandy Smith and they used the money raised from Sandy's GoFundMe campaign to reopen the case forensically. At the same time, Eric and Ronnie were able to secure promises from SLED that solving this case really mattered to them. And in the meantime, we began to work on a new case for us, the Grant Solomon case out of Nashville, Tennessee. We even changed the name of our podcast from Murdoch Murders Podcast to True Sunlight Podcast in May, with the idea that we would still be covering some of the Murdoch cases, but we would be venturing down new paths, bringing sunlight to new parts of the country where it was so desperately needed. Even as our focus shifted, we could sense that the Murdoch story wasn't ready to quit us. 
Ellick and his bestie co-conspirator, Corey Fleming, were indicted federally, bringing with it more suspicions that their power and influence still meant something. There was Corey's federal sentencing and his state sentencing. And then there was Russell's sentencing. There was Ellick's flip-flopping on whether he was going to plead guilty to his federal crimes, and then his state flip-flopping and then sentencing right after Thanksgiving. In August of this past year, we started to feel tremors that something was afoot. Starting with a surprise early drop of the Murdoch Family Project with Fox Nation, featuring the coveted Buster Murdoch interview in which he and tabloid reporters heavily hinted that this wasn't the end of the line, that there were more questions about the jury, and that there would be more to come. In early September, we found out what that meant. Dick and Jim all but wheeled boxes with blank sheets of paper in them in front of the media to say there is proof Becky Hill tampered with Ellick's jury. The last four months have been nothing short of frustrating as we continue to push back on Dick and Jim's hollow narrative that Ellick did not get a fair trial. And despite Becky's multitude of dumb decisions, as well as the revelations that show she isn't who she seemed to be, we continue to do our best to bring sunlight to what has been the darkest and most corrupt corner of our judicial system. Before Judge Newman sentenced Alec Murdoch, Creighton Waters addressed the court. I want to remind you what he said. And I've looked in his eyes, and he liked to stare me down as he would walk by me during this trial. And I could see the real Alex Murdoch when he looked at me. The depravity, the callousness, the selfishness of these crimes are stunning. The lack of remorse and the effortless way in which he lies, including here sitting right over there in this witness stand. Your Honor, a man like that, a man like this man, should never be allowed to be among free law-abiding citizens again. Those words still give me goosebumps. A man like this man should never be allowed to be among free, law-abiding citizens again. Let's not ever forget that. Not for one second. Alec Murdoch got a fair trial, and he is exactly where he belongs. He is a dangerous person. In just over a month, we might be back in court for Ellick's evidentiary hearing, to cut through Dick and Jim's nonsense maybe once and for all, to cut through their lies and their exaggerations and their manipulations. It is going to take the sharpest of sharp legal minds. We are told Justice Jean Toll is that person. It would be so nice not to be disappointed by someone in 2024. Stay tuned. Stay pesky and stay in the sunlight. Happy New Year from all of us at Luna Shark. True Sunlight is a Luna Shark production created by me, Mandy Matney, and co-hosted by journalist Liz Farrell. Learn more about our mission and membership at lunasharkmedia.com. Interruptions provided by Luna and Joe Pesky. A 
Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.